bow your heads with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for these precious people who think it that important to stop everything they're doing and to sit with your word and to hear your voice. So it gives me great joy and honor to come alongside them and to read the word out loud and to enable faith because faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of God. So the greatest joy, the greatest honor on this planet is to enable, to facilitate the faith of others. What a joy, what, a, what an absolute honor. So I thank you for that. And I thank you for the word of God that is in our hands and in our language. Thank you that you have a word of encouragement for each and every one of us. And Lord, there's just so much happening going on in our heads and minds and hearts. We just need to, to calm down. To just calm down and to, to remember there is nothing beyond your control. To remember that there is no chaos in heaven, no virus in heaven. No confusion around the throne. There is absolute power, absolute control, sovereignty. And it is to that God we come in worship and adoration and praise. We give you our hearts this evening, Lord, to mend it, to mold it, to instruct it. Instruct our hearts, O oh God. Teachers instruct our minds. Theologians instruct our minds. But the Holy Spirit instructs our hearts. Ephesians, uh, uh, Proverbs 2 verse 10 says, when we ask for wisdom, wisdom will enter our hearts. We have intelligence in our mind, but we have wisdom in our hearts. And wisdom, wisdom is what God wants to see in us. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Thank you, Father God, for Ephesians, this beautiful book. And as we look into it, Lord, calm our hearts, quieten our hearts, Lord. Remind me that this is not a sermon. I'm not here to preach. I'm here to sit with people and to look into your word and find even for myself and engage with the word of God prayerfully in brokenness, and humility, engage with the word of God to learn God's perspective on life, on man, on women, on marriage, on church, on the future, and on salvation. Oh God, instruct us, wherever we're sitting right now, from all across the world, Lord, instruct us in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We are in one of the jewels of the Bible, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And last week we covered uh, verse 1 to verse 10 of chapter 2. And what a passage of scripture that was. I mean, it's just, um, I wish I could go over it again, but I'll probably land up preaching out so I'm not going to do that right now. But I want to just repeat two things, just say two things. And that is, last week, the verse we ended with was verse 10. For we 
are the workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that in a, we should walk in them. So we ended with the devotional idea that the Christian's life is a life prepared. It's a prepared life. It's a pre-prepared life. It's a life set beforehand. Good works set beforehand that you may walk in them. So God has a plan. Every bend of the way, every person who comes in and out of your life, every difficult situation, every time the day goes sour, the day turns and you're not able to get that kind of direction or fruit out of the day that you wanted. No matter what happens in life, from bleak to blessed, God has ordained a life for us. And I'm not saying that God has ordained a life of blessing for us. I'm saying that God has ordained a life of blessed works so that we may walk in them and just live it out. Live it out. So that can and must be done with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will tutor us. He will tell you in your year, go this way, go that way. At the right time, he will give you the word that you need to say at the right time to your wife, to your spouse, to your husband, to your children, just to the to the colleague, to the critic to the opposer, to the persecutor. He will say a word. It's it's always a pre-prepared life. There are no surprises in the life of a believer. And I'm going to build on this because once you understand that every individual has a preordained life. Now, I'm not saying God ordains suffering for us and God ordains failure or brokenness or sin. But what God ordains is that a response to all that life might throw at us, wherein we may be to the praise and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherein the Spirit of God that is in us might give us victory. So as he works in each and every individual, he also works with the church. So at this point, I want to stop and remind us that this study is not a theological exposition of uh, Ephesians. We would have to slow down and go a lot deeper into that. But it is more a thinking through together of what is the church? What is the church? Who is the church called to be? What is God doing right now when everything is changing? Some are saying it's never going to be the same. Some are saying, oh, it's always been the same. Ecclesiastes says nothing changes under the sun. It's all the same. It's Life is meaningless. You know, nothing is ever new. But no matter what, we have to stop and ask, you know, is God moving things, changing things, preparing things for a different future? Is he is he doing things so that we will respond differently, act differently? And if so, then how do we go about doing that? How do we sense that the changes and the and the and the leading of the Holy Spirit in that? I believe he is changing things. Marriage will stay the same. 
walking with God will stay the same. Purposes of God will stay the same. Ministry will probably stay the same. Loving people, caring for the poor will always will stay the same. But how the church has functioned together and how they have sought to identify itself. We have denominations and abominations. We have, we have uh, languages and classes. We have methods and we have, we have ceremonies. We have traditions and we have new waves, new waves, new season, new. What is the church? Don't tell me it's all of it. It's all of it. No, that's just confusion. That's too confusing. Can't buy that. So the church is always, I guess the church is something that in some aspects we have gone a little off track or we have maybe gone away and God is going to use this pandemic. He's going to use this severe situation, legal, uh, national, uh, relational, financial. He's going to use the situation to bring us. You, you get my point? He's always going to do anything he can for the good of us. He's going to bring us back to what's best for us, to bring us back to the ideal situation where the church is at its best. <laughs> and here's the bad news. In history, church has been at its best in persecution. During war, during hard times and during persecution, the church has been at its best. The church has never grown better, looked better, reacted better, uh, had a better spirit to it than during the hardest of times. So everything that we thought is church and the functioning of church has, has been toppled, has been, has, the, the boat has been rocked. Now, is that was what we were doing wrong? No, I'm not saying that. Nobody is saying that. What we are saying is, what does it look like now? So with that mindset, we are studying Ephesians, Galatians, Philippines, Colossians. We're studying all of these. We're going through all of this to rethink the church. Okay? For we are his workmanship, for we are his workmanship, excuse me, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared. So it's a life prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So with that said, now you have to ask the question, why does Paul in the book of Ephesians go into the whole Jew and Gentile argument? It's a beautiful passage. It has wonderful things to say about it. But why does he go down that track? Right? Let's look at it. Therefore, remember, we are in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles. So who is he talking to? Obviously, everybody else other than the Jews. You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Quote, unquote. So you Gentiles, in the flesh you were called the uncircumcised by the circumcised. So the circumcised, which are the Jews, used to call you the uncircumcised, uh, the uncircumcised Gentiles. And that whole circumcision, uncircumcision is made in the flesh. So we're, going, we're building um, uh, an argument, we're building a... a um, a presentation, an understanding based on some key words. Gentiles, circumcision, uncircumcision, flesh, made by flesh, made by hands. Okay. Then verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time. Now you got to ask why he's ask, saying the word remember twice. It, it's obviously something he's taking you back to because you're not that anymore. Verse 11, therefore remember. Verse 12 Remember that, okay? Verse 11, remember, therefore remember that 
Verse 12, therefore, remember that. These are important points in scripture where you want to stop. Circle, remember, circle, remember, connect the two and remember. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Jews made a scene of us. They looked down on us. They, we were outsiders. When we came to the temple, we stood in the outer courts. We were not allowed into the inner courts. Leave alone the holiest of holies. Dare we ever imagine that we could go into the holiest of holies? We were all the nations. We were the, oh, the we were the ununited uh, nations. We were the uncircumcised nations. UN um, outside. <laughs> Standing, I didn't expect that to come up. It was standing outside in the courts outside, and we could only hope that, along with the the Jewish sacrifices, that the priests would be able to take our sacrifices in. Now, does that mean anything to you at all here in the twenty first century? Probably not a lot. Probably not a lot. But if you were to be in that age where to go to God, you are not allowed into the synagogue because you're a Gentile. You're not allowed into the whole, the courts of the of the of the temple. You were you were allowed only to stay outside, and even there was no guarantee about that. And you, your way to God was through the Jewish people. Your way to uh, it was outside. You were you were not one of them. You were unacceptable. You were not a citizen. You were an outsider. Paul is saying, do you remember that? Do you remember how that felt? Therefore, remember at one time you were Gentiles. Then verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. So Christ was a Jew. As a Jew, he came to his own. And he was first there to his own. And over and over again, in the first 13 chapters of the gospel, he says, I've come for my own. And how can I give what is blessed and meant for my own to others? And the Gentile woman says, yes, but even the dogs eat off the crumbs of the table. So you're getting this mentality that the Gentiles understood to come back to God. We had to come through and to these people who were called the circumcision. Remember? Do you remember that? You were at that time separated from Christ, circle separated. And get the feel of this, I'm an, outsider. I'm an outsider, I'm an outsider, I'm not allowed in, I'm not one of you, I'm not special, I'm not a citizen. Separated from Christ, ouch, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. All that is the wealth of Israel as a, as a nation, a called nation, not yours, not yours. Remember that? Do you remember that? Strangers to the covenants of promise. It didn't apply to you. Do you remember that? Having no hope and without God in this world. So that's the foundation of what Paul is trying to refer to here when he tells these, uh, these Gentiles. Do you remember what your situation was? Do you remember how you felt? Do you remember uh, being alienated, being outside, standing outside the temple, hoping and wishing you were you doing absolutely, you could do nothing about it. You were not born a Jew. Too bad. You were not born a Jew. You can't be one of us. You can't claim the promises of God. Your children can't have the same blessing. Wow. But, but, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, 
I can just imagine the the Gentile believers just jumping for joy at the understanding of what God had in store for them. But now in Christ Jesus, you, so go back to verse 11, you Gentiles, come back to verse 13, you who were once afar off have been brought near. You were far, you were brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. What is this blood and far and near got to do with it? So when you came to the temple, you stood far outside and you sent the blood of the bulls and goats as your sacrifice and the priest took it into the temple and you were afar off and the blood of the bulls and goats was taken into the temple for your sake. But there was no guarantee. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once outsiders, now by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been brought near. You are now being allowed phase by phase, curtain after curtain, into the very holiest of holies, one shoulder to shoulder with those who are called the circumcision. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, that is Jesus, himself is our peace. Not a legal system. Not a relationship, not uh, or with a, with a, with another people group. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one. There's a lot of words there. Us both one, who has made us, that is Jews and Gentiles, both of us one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What was that dividing wall of hostility? What has he broken down in the flesh? And verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Now circle law and circle ordinances and connect them all the way up through flesh, the word flesh, to circumcision. So when you say uh, you were the uncircumcised, called uncircumcised by the circumcision, by circumcision that is by hands in the flesh. Now this Jesus comes in the flesh he came down and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is the difference between this flesh and that flesh? Circumcision. By abolishing the law that called for circumcision and expressing the, ordin the express ordinances that he might create in himself this new flesh, not your flesh, legal, not your flesh, Gentile, but in you, in himself, a new man. See that? You see that verse 15? Let's do it again. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that, circle that 40 times, that, that's the purpose clause. This is why he did it, that he might create. This is not restarting. This is not recreating. This is not finishing. This is starting anew. This has never been there before. By he's not he's not it's not an amalgamation of the Gentiles and the Jews. It is not a merging of any two religions or of faiths or systems of, of, of religion. This is a creation of a brand new thing that he might create in himself one new man. One new man in the place of the two. He's not made those two one man, he has made out of those two one man, so making peace. So it is not that the two have made a peace treaty with each other. It is that in Jesus Christ, both have become the same. The Gentile has become one 
with Christ and the Jew has become one with Christ and in Christ we are both sin or sorry we are both the same and the Jewish is Judaism uh, Jew uh, Jewism is not a word but I'm going to use it right now Jewism has been demolished abolished and Gentilism has been abolished. You are no more, no more standing on the ground of division. So there is no wall. So you come to into Christ, a new man. So making peace and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in a body. You have to understand this and, and make the transition to where we are today. In a body, both to God in one body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility let me see if i can do it without a whiteboard but do it in terms of um uh, uh, actions here so in this box over here we have christ's body this is jesus come in the flesh okay and then we have the law the legal system the jews here and then we have we have the flesh represented by the gentiles here or gentiles represented by the flesh here and the difference between the legal the those with the law and those without the law were circumcised versus uncircumcised both have come into christ and jesus was fulfilled the law and he was also god and he was and by his blood that is by his death he has made both one he was the sacrifice he was the priest he was the uh, he is the head of the church he is the one that brings everybody together so the law is abolished and you've brought in flesh is abolished and you've brought in and all in christ so the law brought bondage bondage is over flesh brought bondage bondage is over and we are now in christ free free to be one free to serve no that's nowhere close to the depth and gravity of that subject don't even don't even think that I've touched the surface of that particular subject because there's so much more to that. But I've only skimmed through it for the purpose of getting to the idea of what has God creating now. So if it's not in the flesh, then we need to think about church as not something that we do in the flesh. If it's not by law and legalism, then we need to think about church as not something that is done in the law or abiding by the law. So the law has been abolished and we cannot reconstruct the same enmity and hostility either through denominations or traditions or ceremonies or ways of doing church. We have to come to terms with what Christ had in store for this new man and this new, which he will explain in brief here, but a lot more in the rest of the chapters of Ephesians and in Romans, et cetera, et cetera. We are in verse 17. I wish I could stop and take questions um, right now. Verse 17. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Keep it like a reference point so that when we make sense of the church, we understand where this church has come from, how it has started. It was not a new idea, but it's a new creation. And God had this mystery all along that he would bring about a meeting of the law and the flesh in Christ that Christ would be the perfect flesh and Christ would fulfill the law, thereby setting us all free. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace. Okay, he came and he preached peace. Go back to verse, um, verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. So in verse 15, he's making peace. And in verse 17, he is now preaching peace. 
he came and preached peace to you who are afar off, that's the Gentiles, and uh, peace to them and peace to those who are nearby, near to the covenant, near to the ark, near to the temple, near to the heart of the Father. So verse 18, for through him, that is Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, through him, that is Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit. So now that involves Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay? All the Trinity right there. So through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, one spirit, we have access to the Father. Right to the very holiest of holies, the God who no one has seen, Jesus has made himself uh, has, has explained the Father to us. He has made himself available and the Spirit of God has brought us in one. So Jesus in the flesh has made us one and the Holy Spirit in the Spirit makes us one by the baptism of the Spirit, by bringing us all into the body of Christ, which is what the baptism of the Spirit is. Bringing us into the body of Christ, he has made us one and we are then in him brought close to the Father. Verse 18, for through him. Verse 19, so then, so then, go back to verse 11. Therefore, do you remember? Verse 12, do you remember? You were far, you were uncircumcised, you were alienated, you were strangers, you had no hope, you were without God in this world, but now Christ, right? Now come back to verse 19. So then, because of all of this, you are no longer strangers, hallelujah. You are no longer aliens, hallelujah. But you are fellow citizens. He doesn't say you are citizens. He says you are fellow citizens because in, in Abraham, in, the, the Jews had that already in place. They were already, they, they were in a covenant with God, but we have now been made fellow citizens along with them, saints and members of the household of God. We who were far off were brought near. Now I want you to note a few very important words as we close. So then you are now no longer strangers, no longer aliens, fellow citizens, saints, members of the God's own household. Lo lovely words used for every one of us. Fellow citizens, saints, members of the household of God. Verse 20, we are built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit let's wrap this up and i want us to begin to uh, think about the church think ecclesia ecclesiology or uh, about the church verse 20 built on the foundations of the prophets you have been brought near you were strangers you were aliens no more strangers no more aliens you are fellow citizens saints and members and you've been brought near and you are now part of something God is doing. You and me are part of something God is doing that is a growing structure. It is a growing structure. So the temple of old had people standing outside. The new temple is made of the people standing outside. The temple of old had God inside and people standing outside. The temple that God is making now, what God is building now is made of the people that used to stand outside. And God now dwells within the people who were once standing outside, namely you and me. 
built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. Built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. So when a building is made of bricks and mortar, cement, what is the foundation made of? Cement and bits of brick, stone, brick, mortar, cement. When a building is built of people, redeemed people, what is the foundation then of a building that's built of people? People. Other people. More people. Particular people. So who are the people that the church is built on? What is the foundation of the church? He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Who are the prophets? Genesis 2, Malachi. Or some would argue all the way to John the Baptist. And who are the apostles? Everyone after Jesus. That is, the twelve apostles who all gave themselves as martyrs. And then you have Christ Jesus himself who is the cornerstone. So now you're beginning to get the structure. You have a building, a building and a body. You have a building and a body. Both are being constructed and, and being built up. So we're getting the sense of growth. We're getting the sense of, of, of increase, of expansion. At the same time, it's structured. What doesn't change? The foundation. The foundation doesn't change. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The, not the book, but the, 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 the writers. The apostles are the ones who gave their life. They shed their blood. The church is built on the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs, right? The church is, exists because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. And we think that we can build the church from social media and advertising. I just wanted to throw that in because that's what we think. We don't think that it's going to be the same and what is expected from us, modern day believers, is the shedding of blood, the willingness to face persecution, the willingness to give our lives if it ever called for that. Nothing has changed about the church. The church is built on people is built by is built uh, for the people and for the God who lives amidst them. So let's go back to this. I got a little carried away there. Built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. This means not just the teachings, but the people themselves, their life, their the blood that they shed, and Jesus Christ Himself is the cornerstone. Now the cornerstone wasn't actually in the corner. The cornerstone was actually at the center of the then known structures. And this was the stone. Uh, it, was, it was not so much a, um, what do you call it? It was not so much about the construction, but it was more about the design. It was more about the architecture. And so the cornerstone was the stone by which all other stones would be aligned in order for the structure to balance itself out perfectly. So Jesus is the cornerstone. And by him, his life, his call, his death, his emptying himself, by his character, by his command, by his uh, mandate, by his commission, every 
member is added to the church and becomes more like him. Uh, if you note, note the other passage of scripture, we like living stones are being fashioned, being built into a holy priesthood, into a holy temple. Right. So built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself is that cornerstone in whom, in whom, not on whom, but in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I want you to note a couple of things and we're done. We're done. Promise we're done. In whom the whole structure being joined together, underline joined together, grows. When it's joined together, it grows. When it's not joined together, it doesn't grow. A church that is not joined together doesn't grow. A church that is joined together grows. God never meant for the church to be named. It never meant for the church to be denominational. It never meant for the church to be separate. It never meant for the church to gather. It was meant to be scattered, but they were meant to be a people. And church was meant to be the people that are built on the apostles and the prophets. You're saying, Pastor, I already know that. I knew that. I've known that. No, I don't, I don't think we know it. I don't think we know it. It's one of those situations, one of those things where we know it as a as a as a as a knowledge, we know it as information. But when it comes to church, we will fight for the worship, how we like it. We will fight for methodology. We will fight on theological issues. We'll fight for on, on, on process issues. We'll fight for name. We will call loyalty to the church more to a building than to a shepherd. More to a building than to a shepherd. You see what I'm saying? More to uh, a denomination than to the cause of the gospel. More to a, a, a registration mindset than to a kingdom mindset. Our, lo our loyalties lie in, in very human and fleshly and corporate things. So he says the church was to be one big body of people. And these people were joined together and they grew. Okay, they grew into a holy dwelling in the Lord, a holy dwelling in the Lord. That means God would dwell in it. Same idea. It's a temple. Temple is where God dwells. He dwells among his praises of his people. But this temple is built by the people who used to stand outside the temple once upon a time. Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Lastly, verse 22. In him, okay, go back to verse 20, Christ himself being the cornerstone and verse 22, in him, you also Gentiles, Gentiles, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Into a in Christ, you are being built together for a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. All the Trinity is involved over here, but circle the two phrases, built, joined together, and built together. When you're joined together, it grows. And when you're built together, he dwells. When you're joined together, it grows. And when you when it's built together, it dwells. So as you're joined together, the church grows. And God dwells the church. The more the church expands, the more God's dwelling is. The more he lives in the hearts of his people across the face of the world, in every tribe, kindred, time, and tongue. And that is the heart of God. That everyone would have a witness of the church 
somewhere in their locality so that they may have access to the presence of God. That's what the temple was supposed to be. That's what the temple was supposed to be. So that is what God is doing. So now we really need to think about us as a church. And I'm not talking about my church or your church or just the church, God's, God's family. And how do we need to think about it in terms of missions, in terms of structure, in terms of ministry, in terms of money? We cannot, we cannot be stuck in our old ways. There's got to be some morphing of the way church is done. Now, if we're not able to meet together and if we're not able to sing corporate worship together, that has been removed, then what is left? What are the things that are left? Uh, I know the lockdown will get over and we'll get back to fairly, fairly normal, but how does God want us to, sh to play out this? And we have always been taught, at least I've been always taught, that the church is in the world, the church is in the world to minister to the world. Am I wrong? No, this is not wrong. And I'm not saying it's wrong. But just think, just based on this, okay? The church is in the world and the church is here to serve the world. So we are to, uh, to implement the fivefold teaching of Christ or the fivefold ministry of Christ. And Jesus was here to, you know, to, uh, to open the eyes of the blind and to set the captives free, et cetera, et cetera. And you, so you understand the fivefold ministry of Christ. Absolutely right. Is the church here to do that? Are we the body of Christ? Are we the hands and feet of Christ? Absolutely. But when you strictly understand the theology of the structure of the church, the structure of the church is primarily for God to dwell, for God to dwell, for people to dwell together and God is with them. So this is not about you and me. This is about God wanting to be with us. So first God gives express details about the temple so that when it is finally done and the prayer of dedication, the Shekinah glory comes and God is with his people. God is with his people. And then 400 years of silence and then Pentecost happens and the Shekinah glory of God comes as the Holy Spirit arrives. And again, God is with his people. But this time with the people that were not his before, that were standing outside the temple before, but now, now, now ushered into the holiest of holies. So he says, boldly come, boldly come into the, into the holiest of holies because you have been bought by the precious and cleansed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm all over the place this evening, but my mind is basically trying to just kind of wrap around what church should be like because we are we are slaves of of tradition and slaves of action we are do people rather than be people if you understand what i mean we want to do for us religion and everything is doing our faith needs to do 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 but what if we are meant to be a people where god dwells what does that look like? What does that mean for our lives? What then becomes the most precious thing? What was the purpose of the temple and, if, and God's presence in the temple? What was the purpose of the temple? Let's keep thinking. Let's not give up. Let's not be afraid to question some of the most familiar and comfortable ideas we have had about church. 
And for those of you coming in from a non-church background or you've not been too involved with church or grown up arguing about what the church is and isn't, why didn't you come with a fresh view and try and figure out what is God saying about the church? And in chapter 3, he's going to go even deeper and give a better understanding of this mystery of how this unity works. Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. Christ is all in all. He is the head of the body. The body is growing as every member comes together and does his part. That means a member has to express his gift his gift, he uses his gift, and as he uses the gifts, and all the gifts are being used, then the body grows together. And as a building, it is structured to be built together as a holy dwelling for God. So the primary purpose of the church is for God to be with us. And if that's the primary purpose, then what should the church be about? And what needs to be different? I'm not here to give answers. I'm here to raise questions. And I want to be the first student of this dilemma. Lord, if you shut down Sunday morning, and if you shut down all our worship, and if you shut down the ways and the means and the, and the traditions that we have become familiar with and what we call church, what today is the way the church should function? And how and who have you called us to be in today's age. The easiest thing is to say that God is taking us back because he's not doing a new thing. He's done the new thing. The new thing happened at Pentecost. God is taking us back to the first century church. So as we study the book of Acts and, and, and read through the model of Acts, we're like, hmm, that's what they did. House to house. It was about people. It was about everyone not having anything different or their own, sharing and caring. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, being devoted to the gospel, being devoted to the apostles' teachings, being devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Do we even know what that means? Being devoted to prayer. We say prayers. We're not devoted to prayer. We're devoted to entertainment. We're devoted to earning money, we're devoted to a secure future, whatever that means. One virus can set your future in another direction. But to be devoted to prayer is to believe that prayer is our future. To be devoted to money is to believe that money is our future. To be devoted to, to health is to believe that health will keep us in our future. To be devoted to prayer is to believe that prayer will keep us in our future. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Why was that such a devotion? The time has come. I'm not telling you this because you need to be convinced about this. I'm telling you this because you and I need to pray the church back into this. Are you getting me? Are you getting me? We are the ones. You wouldn't be sitting here listening to me if you didn't already agree. You and I are the ones who need to pray the church back into this where once again we are a community not a denomination. We are a community of people who are dedicated and devoted to these aspects, the word, prayer, making disciples of one another and, 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 and sharing what we have with one another so that the Lord Jesus would be all in all. 
Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. God the Father, God the Spirit, the Son. So then, Jesus, in Him, through Him, in Christ, He Himself, Jesus, Christ, Son, in the Spirit, one Spirit, God the Father, to the Father, for the Father. It just goes round and round in circles and we are just coming back to that one weight, the heavy weight that is Jesus is about the Father, the Father is about the Son, the Holy Spirit is about ensuring that what the Son has accomplished is implemented and what the Father wants is done. And we are invited into this this great work that began before the foundations of the earth. And we will eventually be spectators to that tremendous glory and the glorification of the Lord. Alienated, strangers, separated, godless, now called citizens, saints, members of, of God's own household. So that we may be a dwelling place. Father, we cannot claim to understand what, what's going on here. But we do understand that we have a responsibility. That we have a responsibility to align ourselves to the cornerstone. To build ourselves on the apostles and the prophets. To grow in holiness because we are a holy temple. To abide in him. To build our lives on him. Being built together into a dwelling place. There is a growing there is a functioning, there is a growing, there is implementing, there is a there is a, a structure, that is, there is a work here that God is doing and that our lives need to align itself to this work and in order to, for, for balance and for, for, for design, it, we need to align ourselves to the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus. We are still divided, O oh God. Heavenly Father, we're still divided. We're still divided on caste, on creed. We're still divided north and south. We're still divided in, in methodology. Oh God, I pray against the divisions of our churches. I pray against the divisions of our churches in, in perspective as well as in policy. I pray against the destruction of our churches. Lord, I pray against domestic abuse and, and violence in the families. Alcohol and pornography that is destroying pastors and leaders and men of the household. I pray, O oh God, for self-centeredness. Men and women, children, teenagers, deeply self-centered, deeply, deeply self-centered. Wake up thinking about themselves, go to sleep thinking about this. this is such a far cry from discipleship, from being one in Christ, from being brought, from being grateful for the opportunity to be members of the commonwealth fellow citizens, members of the household of God. 
We're not living for that anymore, by that anymore, by that knowledge, by that gratitude. We are living with a sense of rights, a sense of entitlement. We've demanded from the world, demanded from our parents, demanded from our education, demanded from our economy. And when we come to church, we demand from God. Arrogant, arrogant believers praying and throwing the precious name of Jesus in the air multiple times for demons to laugh at us. We throw the name of Jesus like it's a, like it's a mantra, oh God, and we demand fleshly, carnal blessings for ourselves. When God has called us for a holy calling, a holy calling, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a holy temple, a holy building. Why? So that God may dwell with us. We want from you, but we don't seem to want you. We like you, but we don't seem to love you. Oh God, would you search us and know our hearts. See if there be any wicked way in us. You'll definitely find it. And Lord, would you cleanse us from every unclean thing. Cleanse the church. Cleanse your bride. Make us fit for the great meeting with the Lord Jesus. Oh God, for all that you've done for us. For all that Christ has done, chapter after chapter, the declarations of all Jesus has done for us. Oh God, would you align our hearts to the brokenness of Christ, the emptying of Christ, the humility of Christ, the desire of Christ for the glory of the Father. Father, would you do a deep work in our church? Lord, would you revive the broken uh, fix the broken, would you revive the, the, the dead, the deadness within us, the, the, anything that has become our God, our little God. Destroy idolatry in the church, I pray today. Destroy idolatry. Whatever we have, we have set up as idols, cast down our idols. We are a holy people set apart for the dwelling of God within us. And that kind of a temple filled with the Shekinah glory of God will not shine for itself. Churches will not shine for itself. They'll shine the, the light of Jesus. God is present in his midst. And we will be filled with the fullness and the wholeness, consumed. We will be consumed with the presence of God in us, near us. It would be too much of an overwhelming experience to think about ourselves and to be consumed with our petty, useless, selfish emotions, our arrogance, ourselves, what we want, who we want, why we want. Little fleshly beings acting like gods. Thank you that in your wrath you don't destroy us. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. Thank you that you remember that we are made of dust. Holy Father in heaven, righteous God, 
Give us an understanding that we would be consumed with the presence of God and understand that every man is the dwelling place of God. Every family is the dwelling place of God. Every community of Christ, wherever we gather for worship, there am I in the midst of where a community that houses the presence of God. We are to carry the presence of God wherever we go. And God will do his work. Imagine if we just understood this and implemented it. Imagine if we lived for the purposes for which you actually made the church. Oh God, I bless your name. I give you praise. I give you glory. I give you all the adoration of my life. Lord, if you, if you, if you command or demand anything from me, it would not be too much. Nothing you ask of me would be too much for all that you have given to me and how much you have loved me. Lord, I want to be consumed for your glory and I want to be used for the church. I want to be used, use my intellect, use my flesh, my body, use my strength to my dying day, to all that I have, all that I am is yours. Yours for the sake of Jesus, for the name of Jesus, for the glory of your name, that that the, that the cabinet ministers, the, the, the leadership of this country, that the power corridors of power would say your name, speak your name, fight your name, anything, Lord, that this country, that this nation would know that Jesus Christ is everything he claimed he is. I'm willing and I desire to be spent for the cross. And I desire for a church that is filled with people who have tasted persecution, counted the cost, and set their eyes on Jesus. No matter no, no matter who goes with them or stands with them. But you are fellow citizens and saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles. And prophets, all oh, these words, what wonderful words, holy words, ever true, changing me, changing you. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in him you also are being built together. We are being built, we are being made. And the ministry is to help each other grow. Joined together, we grow. Divided, in Jesus' name I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. To God be the glory. All the praise and adoration to the to the Lord Jesus. His church for His glory. Pastors for His glory. Members for His glory. No cost too much. No cost too much. Amen. Amen. Signing out. May the Lord bless you. Be refueled in Jesus' name. Good night, everyone. Have a great weekend. God bless.